2: For a long time, if you asked Paul Westerberg about a replacements reunion, he would have cracked you over the head with his guitar. But now, the band is back.
1: I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. We revisit our classic album dissection of Let It Be by The Replacements, and Greg drops a coin in the Desert Island jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news.
2: That's the Canadian trio Mets with their song, Get Off. And Mets is one of the bands on the shortlist to win its country's Polaris Music Prize. Other nominees include Metric, Colin Stetson, Young Galaxy, and six other Canadian artists. And we're going to find out the winner on September 23rd. At the time of this recording, we don't know who the winner will be, but a lucky few of you listening in different markets and on podcasts will already be the wiser. But with Canada having quite a decade in terms of its contribution to music, We wanted to talk to Polaris founder and executive director Steve Jordan about what's in the water up there. Steve joins us now from the CBC in Toronto. Steve, welcome to Sound Opinions. Uh, Thanks for having me, fellas. So give us the backstory for the Polaris Music Prize. How did this come into being?
3: Well, about 10, 11 years ago, I had this eureka moment when uh, after years of following the Mercury Prize in the UK, I would know five of the acts on their short list and the other five, because they were on the same list, I, I checked them out and I discovered a lot of great music that way. At the time, I was uh, doing A&R for Warner Music in Canada. And as it turns out, a lot of the bands that I, that I was trying to champion went on to some success worldwide, like Metric, Broken Social Scene, Feist, and oddly enough, ended up getting nominated for Polaris uh, a few times, and uh, at least in one case, winning. And, you know, we'll see what happens as Metric is on the shortlist this time. So we were inspired by the Mercury Prize and also the Giller Prize, which is an award for fiction in Canada. And we just thought maybe there is some sort of predisposition in Canada to create another music award that doesn't count sales and purely counts critical opinion.
1: Well, for listeners who don't remember, the Mercury Prize is the uh, the British music industry's honoring of the best recordings of a given year. Greg and I talk about it each year when that list comes out. We've talked about the Polaris Prize, and we talk about the Grammys. <laughs> And, you know, Steve, I mean, despite the stated mission of the Recording Academy to honor artistic excellence, it always looks to us as if they're honoring sales achievements and or making good to an artist who really should have gotten some prize 20 years ago, but now they're going to give it now. Right. We endlessly pick on the Grammys. Tell us the difference.
3: Well, the Grammys are voted on by, I believe it's a a membership, but you have to have a recording credit uh, to your resume. So I know that there's been a lot of A&R people or label people who have gotten, um, uh, let's just say, creative credits on albums so that they could qualify to vote for the Grammys. The difference uh, between us, and actually the difference between us and the Mercury Prize as well, is... There's no submission process. In other words, there's no fee that you spend and submit your recording to the Polaris Jury. And the Polaris Jury itself is different. It is entirely made up of music journalists, bloggers, broadcasters, anyone in media who covers music either for a living or a serious hobby in Canada. And we have over 200 people and they themselves select records and then present them to the rest of the jury for their consideration. So you can be considered for Polaris and not even know you're being considered for Polaris. And in fact, once you make our long list of 40, which we release in June, for a few artists, that's the first they've heard of being selected for it.
2: Wow. So who's on this jury? So you're saying 200 music critics nominate uh, whatever their favorite album might be to a jury. Who is on the jury that uh, makes the final list?
3: Don't make me name all 200. (laughs) I don't want to use up my whole slot. No, no. Do you mean the whole 200, or is there an executive panel? The executive panel, we call them the grand jury. Uh, We select 11 people from that larger jury, and they're the ones that pick the winner from the shortlist. But the larger jury picks our long list of 40 and our short list of 10. We have an ongoing year-round private discussion online, wherein anyone on the jury, it can be a small college radio station, it can be somebody writing for music for the biggest daily paper in Canada. They can bring forth a title for suggestion to the rest of the jury. Once they do that, we'll go to the rights holder for that particular record, and we'll get permission to upload it to a server, and then it's available to everyone on the panel. Steve, we should talk about the diversity on
1: this year's list. You have this art punk band, Godspeed, You Black Emperor. And then you have a very successful duo, Tegan and Sarah.
4: All I want to get is... A little bit closer All I want to know is Can you come a little closer
1: but I, I just want to go back to this notion of letting two hundred people vote—you know—from from from the the big daily music critics to the blogger. You know, you crazy Canadians! Your socialized medicine, your your gun laws, <laughs> and the idea of letting people who actually like and love music uh, vote on a music prize.
3: I, we looked at um, you know, we looked at the jazz and pop. Do, do you guys both vote in the jazz and pop? Yep.
1: Yes, the yes. the Village Voice Pez and Jop poll of, of there's some five hundred critics. At this point in America, that vote
3: right. So that that had a little bit of influence on on how we did it as well. I think the other thing is again going back to my past career as a frustrated record executive. When I did ANR, you know, I had a lot of different sources, as every A&R person does. Some people are are, are radio people, artist managers, agents, but I found that for musical quality the best opinions that i got the best tips that i got were from music writers because they and and it, they would be on things before Anyone else? Can I can um, I just take a moment yeah. to savor yeah. that, Steve?
1: <laughs> I think Greg and I have had uh, you know a combined sixty five seventy years as music journalists, starting as DIY fanzine guys. I've never had any A and R person ever say that to me. Have you, Greg? <laughs> no, not lately. <laughs> okay, gloating over. <laughs> right. But but you know your background as as someone from the industry. What do prizes mean today? Now that the major label system is is uh, collapsing, people talk about gatekeepers. There are fewer gatekeepers than, than ever, but that means this avalanche of new music coming at you all the time. So how do you find the stuff that's going to be great?
3: Yeah, I mean that's that's one of our stated objectives. That's one of the models. It's like we're just we're one of many filters that are out there, but our filter is a little bit finer because our filter is made up of two hundred different filters. In terms of the benefit that it has, it, it, it's what you'd expect. I think for for some artists, it can raise them a degree in their career trajectory, sales, uh, you know. But for other artists, they don't really need that attention from us. I mean, we've we've had Drake nominated, we've had you know Feist nominated, win Arcade Fire. They're beyond any need for the promotion that that we provide, but. What's great about their embracing of our process is they get to, you know, the high tide floats all boat argument is if other bands are on the same short list as Arcade Fire, yet they've, they haven't they have sold more than 5,000 copies, some people are going to take that seriously and pay attention to it, especially music lovers, which is our prime audience. You've got an eclectic list uh, for 2013. What about uh, the range
2: of nominees? This seems to be fairly typical, and... When you talk about a range that goes from, say, a hip-hop group like a tribe called Red, to an electronic pop group like Purity Ring, is it your intention to sort of diversify the nominees is there some kind of methodology behind the nominees so that they're all not from the same category musically or is that just sort of happened
3: by luck of the draw it's really luck of the draw and for every person that says what a Diverse list. There's also someone else who complains that the list excludes X, Y, and Z. So, um, you know, people are constantly on us, and we like to think they are because they care, to broaden the scope of what we do. So we're we're challenged with that every year. I'm I'm wondering
2: if uh, any of the nominees this year surprised you. I know you're supposed to say they're, they're all my favorites, but was there anything out there that just sort of jumped out at you as kind of being a little, you know,
3: out of left field for you? In terms of, well, you know nothing surprises me because I count the ballots obviously, but it's more about what the, the momentum I start to see from the internal discussions that happen amongst our jury. and we haven't mentioned uh, one of our shortlisters, which is Zaki Ibrahim, uh, who, if things go her way in terms of the impact she could have, she could be another able test face. she could be another weekend type..
1: We've been talking to uh, Steve Jordan, the founder of the Polaris Prize in Canada. Steve, thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Thank you very much.
2: The Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim Dirigatis, and that is a track from The Replacements at Riot Fest this year. First shows in 22 years for The Replacements, the Minneapolis band that was one of the great bands of the 80s. I think we can all agree on that. Great songs and chaotic live performances, legendary in a lot of circles, finally playing their first set of shows in two decades. The reason for their reunion was that uh, the guitarist in the latter years of the band in its 80s and early 90s incarnation, Slim Dunlop, suffered a stroke last year. And that prompted co-founding members uh, Paul Westerberg and Tommy Stinson to get together in the studio, start recording some new tracks. Mm. They put out an EP to defray Slim Dunlop's medical costs. They took that a step further this year. They've been getting offers from festivals, Jim, for for years, as you know, to reunite, make a series of comeback shows they refused all of them, but this year they thought, hey, maybe it's a good idea. We we kind of enjoyed making these songs together. Let's take it a step further. Let's do a couple of appearances. So they agreed to do three shows, one at Riot Fest in Toronto in August, in Chicago a few nights ago, which you and I just saw, Jim, and then wrapping up in Denver. Uh, we're going to tie that in with a classic album dissection, The Replacement's 1984 release, Let It Be. That's basically the album that I think... For a lot of people, created the mythology of the of the replacements. Yeah. They were a pretty good punk rock band up until that point, so but much. that one took them to another level. Mm-hmm. But first, before we dive into that album, uh, let's talk about what you and I saw the other night at Riot Fest in
1: Chicago. Well, usually we don't read each other's reviews before we tape one of these. But I read your review as soon as it came out, and I had written mine. You liked that show. I don't know what the hell you're talking
2: about. (laughs) I did. I went in very skeptical. Uh, You and I talked about this. I wasn't even sure I wanted to go because I didn't want to ruin anything about what I loved about this yeah, band. Um, because
1: there's so many of these nostalgic oldies, cash-in. Sure. You know, and here you have Bob Stinson, the original guitar player, is dead. And Slim Dunlap had a stroke and can't perform. There's only two guys on stage who were in the replacements, Westerberg and Tommy Stinson. And Tommy's been sitting around for 20 years waiting for Axel Rose to call him to go tour <laughs> with Guns N' Roses. Well, he had been in Guns N' Roses for a
2: while. They both had various solo careers in, you know, various states of
1: <laughs> in, lack of success.
2: Yes, the success maybe wasn't there. Maybe they had run into some just inertia. You you, you sort of sensed like what's what's going to happen with these guys? Are they just going to retire? Yeah. But I think I think Slim Dunlop's medical issues really did galvanize them in a way that they hadn't felt for for a number of years, and they realized, hey, we enjoy playing together. The one thing about. ...reunions, about comebacks, the nostalgia element, you know, you and I are both on record as saying, you know, nostalgia is not really where the heart of rock and roll. It is the enemy of but, all great art. But there is a cynical cash-in aspect to nostalgia... And then there's the nostalgia where it's it's just fun. Let's let's do a few shows. And I'm willing to give these guys a victory lap. It's been 22 years. They had a bunch of great songs. They broke up somewhat ignominiously, if infamously, Live on, the on stage, stage in, in Grant Park, yeah, yeah, where they handed their instruments to their roadies and walked off never to be seen again. Yeah. You know, they deserve a few shows and I think they approach it with the right attitude. They were they were having fun. Everybody was expecting is it's going to be a train wreck briskly played those 25 songs in 75 minutes. I don't expect them to be the replacements of 1987 or 1984 or even 1981, but to hear those songs and to hear the original guys, at least two of the key members of the band, the, the, the two guys that could actually get up on that stage and do them again, having fun with them, the spirit was there. (laughs) I, I love the songs and I thought if they do these three shows and that's it, that's fine. If they come back again and now you start to see the cash in, that's
1: when it's time to get cynical about it. But look, I had a higher standard for this band. This band changed my life. It really helped explain to me what punk rock was. No two replacement sets were ever alike. One out of three of them was magical, and two were disasters. And I don't want to go back. I'm not glorifying (laughs) the disasters where they were drunk. Nobody liked those shows. You didn't hope for a bad night, but it was all about being spontaneous and here and now in the moment. And 20 of the songs they played in Chicago or 22 of the songs were the same exact songs they had played a few weeks earlier in Chicago. Toronto, And I'm sure they're going to be the same exact songs they play in Denver. And and that was not what the band was about. You know, plus you said not everybody was available. Chris Morris was available. They didn't even bother to call him. Tommy Stinson told Rolling Stone. We knew what the answer would be. He'd say no. So there was something missing there. And it was the spontaneity and, and the power of the moment. You know, there was nothing but autopilot you know, nostalgic cover band at Riot Fest. I didn't hear Autopilot. I didn't hear Autopilot. I saw a lot of smiles in a band
2: enjoying that moment. And uh, maybe it's going to be on Autopilot next year. I don't know. But for that moment, I thought they were in that moment, and the audience was in that moment with them. And I love the way they came off cross as musical fans, paying tribute to the music that influenced them. I mean, whether it was singing Alex Chilton or or covering Chuck Berry or Hank Williams, I mean, they were paying tribute to the music that inspired them to pick up a guitar in the first place, and I thought that was the the beautiful part about that night.
1: You liked it, Greg. I wasn't so hot on it. What is a successful reunion show? Let's throw this out to the listeners. What reunions have worked and which ones haven't? Give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800, and we'll air your comments. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we get into the album Let It Be with Minneapolis music writer Jim Walsh. And later, Greg's a man alone on a desert island.
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeWaGottis, and
1: we've been talking about The Replacements and the band's classic album, Let It Be. Greg, this record still holds up incredibly well, especially considering it'll turn 30 next year. Released in 1984 by Twin Tone Records in Minneapolis, this was The Replacements' third release. You know, sometimes when we do these dissections, we talk about records that are both commercial and critical hits, like Purple Rain by fellow Minneapolitan Prince. Or maybe one that didn't sell a lot, but it's been revered by those in the know, like Big Star. This record didn't make any money, and a lot of critics didn't recognize how it was brilliant at the time. But it was a revolutionary record. It's one of the great lost classics of rock and roll period, but especially the 80s, a period when people like Paul Westerberg, the leader of the placements, the singer and songwriter, Bob Stinson, the uh, the scary, large, uh, sort of violent, often drunk guitarist, the, the idiot savant, if you will, mm-hmm. his younger brother, barely 15 or 16 when, when the band started, Tommy Stinson on bass, Chris Mars, the silent drummer, these four guys were rewriting the rule book.
2: This was the great shining moment of this band. They made other albums since then that had been more widely celebrated, but they really got put on the map with Let It Be. It was their fourth record. They'd made basically three records in Minneapolis that were fairly obscure. They were known to sort of a, a certain community of fanzine editors and indie music fans, but you could count those people on on two hands in some cities in the United States. Let It Be came out, and and suddenly there was this sense around the country that important and great
1: things were happening in Minneapolis, and it wasn't just because of Prince. And now, of course, as we said before the break, original members Paul Westberg and Tommy Stinson have reunited for some live shows after a two-decade break. We wanted to revisit our 2007 discussion with music writer Jim Walsh, who wrote an oral history of the band called The Replacements, All Over But The Shouting, and has a new photographic history called Waxed Up Hair and Painted Shoes. We spoke with Jim at The Current in Minnesota. You were playing in bands
2: alongside the replacements. I believe you were at their first gig Sure, in yeah. Minneapolis. You were kind of with them every step of the way. You were it, an eyewitness to history, Jim. <laughs> it, it's, it's sort of amazing.
5: when it, My editor said to me when we kind of finally got the galleys and were going over the last thing, we were sitting there, and he goes, you were sort of doomed to write this book. <laughs> and It's true because Paul and Chris and I went to Catholic grade school and high school in Minneapolis, and there's a very similar sort of water that y'all
1: drink from that and then yeah we were all in bands well that's a good place to start we want to dig deep a gym when we do these album dissections into how the album was made and how it strikes us what endures about it but before we get to let it be and where the replacements were when they made this record bring us up to speed on who they were at that point I mean I remember the first time I saw the replacements I told you this story for the book Mm -hmm. they came out they were a maximum rock and roll underground punk hype I saw them in in Hoboken New Jersey at Maxwell's they came they were awful they were horrible there were all these mohawks there expected a punk band because they'd been written up, up in maximum rock and roll and they got this guy singing kind of Rolling Stone songs badly and then the replacements ended their set but Paul wasn't done so he invited the mohawks who had been taunting him and throwing beer at him all night on stage Paul went behind the drums and played Louie Louie for half an hour with these guys who couldn't play, who picked up the rest of the guy's instruments. You know, Bob was already getting drunker at the bar by that point. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I said, that's when I said, wow, now the whole set was mm-hmm. lousy, but there's something special here. Mm-hmm. And I just went to see them because any, you went to see anybody on a Saturday night.
5: Right. And they were, you know, around that time they were doing these, they called them poop sets and they would be, <laughs> they would be jazz sets. They would play jazz and it was fascinating. You know, what, what is this? They were decidedly not trendy. And if that was their reaction at that show, you know, they were an alternative to alternative to alternative to an alternative to punk. So when you they know, were getting they, a hipster they, buzz,
1: so they would react against it. A
5: hipster hardcore buzz. And certainly mm-hmm. as, as Hootenanny, Hootenanny was a reaction to Stink and anybody, you know, thinking they were a hardcore band. It was so just, Hootenanny
1: is their second album. Hootenanny, Hootenanny was
5: their third album record i mean it was sorry ma was their first record first full-length album then stink was the ep
2: and then Hoot Nanny came after that right. setting so the context leading up to let it be which was their fourth record roughly 1980 1983 84, that period of time you had the hardcore punk scene the black flag and the mohawks hardcore skinheads that was the big scene in the underground uh, you had New Wave kind of morphing over mm-hmm. into the synth pop. You had Flock of Seagulls on the mm-hmm. on the radio and Culture Club. And then you had these big mega mainstream bands. You know, it was the era of the blockbuster album, the Michael Jacksons, the uh, Princes, the Bruce Springsteens, mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. the replacements really didn't fit with any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, even, you know, their contemporaries in the Minnesota scene, Husker Du, mm-hmm. you know, their first record, Land Speed record, you know, hardcore punk record. It was kind of understandable where they were coming from, whereas the replacements, it seemed like... Right. As you were saying, not really fitting in with any of these things.
5: But, but Husker Du was also stretching their yeah. whole thing with Zen Arcade that year. So they were paying attention,
2: too. They were not—Husker They didn't, Husker Du did not want to be pigeonholed, either. Right. But they were sort of moving in the same direction as the, as the replacements were, but that was roughly right. their third or fourth record, where they made that big statement record. Right. Uh, it was a right. great year for that underground rock, because I remember Let It Be came out that year in 84— Zen Arcade by Husker Du came out that year, and we had also the Minutemen with Double, nickels double nickels on the Dime. Right. Three, mm-hmm. yeah, really important statements of that whole underground music scene, independent music scene at the right. time.
5: And in Minneapolis, it was Purple
1: Rain, Let It Be, Zen Arcade. Yeah, you know, so it was. <laughs> okay, so Jim, uh, you interviewed everybody who was anybody and collected all the archival interviews from the time to tell this oral history in your book. Did the replacements go into the studio into um, was it black blackberry, blackberry Way? Way. yeah mm-hmm. did they go into the studio to make a statement record or or was this just the collection of songs that they had that would wind up being phenomenal I think that that you know Hoot Manny had been a i mean i I tell a story in the
5: preface about me kind of bitching at Paul one night and saying, you know what are what are you guys doing, you knuckleheads <laughs> you know you this great band and I had seen him." For a couple of years, and they—they they just like they bored me silly, and mm-hmm. I swore them off. You're like, I don't need to go see this anymore. It's just—you were
1: done with the replacements.
5: They had not uncorked one of those just transcendent things for it felt like a year and a half. So Hoot and was that and mm-hmm. it was around that time and they probably were just getting bored with themselves. Mm-hmm. Also, they had toured with REM. Mm. And I think they that it probably made them feel like a real band and like, wow, this is this is something that is viable. Beyond that, it's just I think it's just as an aesthetic thing, I think they just you know, Paul's songwriting just ratcheted up.
1: Why? Where did that come from? Because as we said, the the first three records, they had little gems that said, this could be a great band that could write great songs. Right. But then there was a lot of noise. And then suddenly, Let It Be is the exact opposite. There are bursts of noise. Tommy gets his tonsils out, right? Right. But song after song that is just so deep and moving and like, where did this come from?
5: I guess that I would would say that probably the R.E.M. tour, a lot of people were writing about him and that, that affects an artist. You know, Peter Buck's calling you the greatest rock and roll band in America. Uh Uh, You step up a little bit, I think.
1: But but still the sense of humor. I mean, because... Greg and I have interviewed Westerberg any number of times, refuses to take himself seriously. There, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people, Jim, that we've all interviewed mm-hmm. that are happy to be the new Dylan mm-hmm. and that are being the... Well, let me
5: tell you, all, I came up with that, late, Jim.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It came to me in a... The source of my brilliance stems yeah. from... You know, <laughs> Westerberg seemed really even more so than many people freaked out when people would begin to talk about how deep Unsatisfied was, how deep 16 Blue was.
4: Drive yourself right up the
1: And I wonder if Gary's got a boner, and the cover of Black Diamond by Kiss, and Tommy gets his tonsils out, are the reaction to that? Because no. there are two sides of this guy. No, There's he, an absurdist. Yeah, but he was terrified of too. Bob Stinson too. All right, no, you not tell- Ex- I mean, I, explain,
5: Jim. Explain. No, I think that that is very much at the crux of why they were great. If you're in a band and you're the guy, and all you've got is yes men, yes, 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 yes. Oh, great idea, great. Yeah, it's it's a horrible rock band. So it's like, you got Bob Stinson on your left, yeah. and Curtis Ace says this very well in the book, too. Kurt knew those guys before they were the replacements. He knew he, he practiced in this band uh, next to the Stinson's house. There's and a he,
1: long-time Minneapolis Curtis, right. rock scene Stalwart. Exactly,
5: yeah. exactly. Kurt is like the Dean of Scream in Minneapolis. He's, <laughs> right. He's, and, but he says that Bob would come to practice
1: and watch those guys and just sneer. So six, but, but, foot, six foot something, about 250 pounds, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a presence. Who yeah. would sometimes, I remember, memorable sets. One where he wrapped himself in cellophane mm-hmm. to play at CBGB's. Another where he was wearing like a baby diaper. Mm-hmm. Don't, tutus. don't yeah. it tutus. It's very P-funk when you think about it. It was yeah. very P-funk. <laughs> I don't know if that's where he got it. And yeah. sort of scary because he was well, yeah. drunk and tottering and teetering. But all, you, you didn't know when he came up to you whether he was going to slug you or give you a hug. <laughs> right. I think it terrified
5: Paul more than amused him. And it, it's just <laughs> wow. imagine
1: so you're saying Paul didn't get feedback from the band. He was had to get it from outside. Bob was like a hardcore critic mm. on on his
5: left. And anyone who's ever been in a band knows what that dynamic is. It's it's very much like you bring a song to the band and they go, "What is this?" And then you then you got to come with, "Gary's got a boner" or "I hate music" or or, mm-hmm. or whatever because it's you can hide behind that. When Let It Be started coming together, he was he was bringing demo stuff to Peter Jesperson, their manager and mentor and friend and uh, co-producer, label the album. guy. Right? Peter acted as a muse.
2: I'm not saying Paul was writing for Peter, but that was a very sensitive outlet. Jesperson it sounded like was the one voice that Paul could look to when he wanted to write these more sensitive songs that the other guys were just going get this out of here, right? To right. Brian Epstein exactly. kind of thing in yeah. a lot of ways. Exactly, exactly. You know, in later interviews, he would sort of fess up to the idea that he had to sort of uh, summon up his courage to write the Unsatisfieds. had to placate those guys, and he had to sort of honor that side of the band mm-hmm. uh, for a long time. Right. And, you know, and remember, Jim, when he when he went solo, that was one of the reasons he justified it. Now I can write whatever I want. I don't have to please anyone but myself. Right. Now I can write these kinds of songs. And, of right. course, you know, Westerberg's never been as great as he was when he did have those guys.
4: Man.
1: really a, a beautiful moment in time for this band the balance was almost perfect maybe right. we're assuming Jim buys something that, that, that he doesn't I mean because for, for Greg and I the reason we're doing the album dissection we think it's their finest moment I maintain that you can I can play for a 17 year old hardcore fan or a sensitive 17 year old singer songwriter yes. let it be and he or she's gonna have their mind blown absolutely because it stands I think it says it, their best
5: album and I think that they throughout their entire career they were looking to that they were not mm. trendy and mm-hmm. I, I agree. I mean, I and that's the thrill of putting this book together is that, you know, this Christmas there's going to be, you know, some cool uncle or aunt or somebody <laughs> is going to give some 16-year-old kid to go, here, this is why I'm so screwed up.
2: Gathering from the chronology that you've uh, put together in All Over But The Shouting, I Will Dare Mm -hmm. seems like kind of a starting point, the transition from Hootenanny, where you started to hear the songs Mm -hmm. that this band was capable of. And then I Will Dare, another leap up altogether, a song that everybody seems to agree that if that song had been released in 1992, uh, would have been a top five... Worldwide single oh, along it the lines been of smells like team Nirvana yeah. smells mm-hmm. like Teen Spirit. It just had, I you, never know, it had of that. Yeah. you know the yeah. wrong timing. It was eight years too soon, but it was that good of a song.
5: The reason we see that I will dare is because it's a pop song. Yeah, and it's it's. It shimmers coming out of every, any speaker, dashboard, Mm -hmm. or show you're at.
1: Production on the first three recordings the replacement's released and suddenly there is. They're doing finger snaps, they're doing maracas, they're doing percussion, they're, they're doing, doing the- Peter Buck's mandolin. Peter Buck's mm-hmm. mandolin, Chan Pauling comes in and plays keyboards. Mm-hmm. There's uh, the answering machine on Answering Machine. Were they starting to have fun in the studio? I mean, I, you get the impression, when you listen to The replacement mm-hmm. Stink and Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash, th- these were records made in like two hours, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. wish they could have done it in 30 minutes. Paul even said he likes producers who work fast,
5: and that's very understandable with rock and roll especially. It's like, you know, you've written the song, you want to get it down mm-hmm. as, you, as you have written it. You want that spirit encased or something. I think there was a sense, a real respect for the songs and so i think that they just went you know we have to render these as imaginatively as the songs are written
2: But I think what you're getting at, Jim Walsh, is the, um, the spontaneity in the moment for this band was all, all it was about. And right. it, it seemed like every stage show was that way, too. It, it was not thought about ahead of time, it was not thought about afterward. What do we feel right. like right now? and and that's the way it's always seemed to be with that band that's that was the charm of it that's absolutely right on and and it was not an intellectual experience yeah
5: it was this communal thing and some nights it would just lay there because it just wasn't happening yeah but the nights when when all the forces came together and coagulated <laughs> it was it like i keep saying funnel cloud or something it 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 really felt like that like Something's happening here, something's happening, and you wrote it and you, you knew it was the clock was ticking. You knew this band was unlike any anything else that came before or since, mm-hmm. really.
2: We want to thank Jim Walsh, our friend and a colleague with the replacements all over but the shouting in world history. Jim, thank you for being on the show. Thanks you guys. It was a pleasure.
1: We'll be back in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRS with more of our classic album dissection of the replacements Let It Be and a Desert Island jukebox track from Greg.
4: Here comes Jane, you know she's sporting the chain. Same hair evolution, same build evolution. Who, tomorrow, who's gonna fuss? And they love each other so, and draw us closer, than you know, love each other so, and draw.
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we're wrapping up our classic album dissection of The Replacements' 1984 album, Let It Be. We'd like to play the song that we think epitomizes it, unsatisfied, without a doubt. Every time this song plays, it
2: brings a little tear to the eye, a little chill up the spine. Absolutely. Uh, it's an emotional bloodletting that really was a revelation for, for the replacements in Westerberg. I think part of the key to this song, Jim, was that the courage that Westerberg had to muster up to even do it because the replacements were a bunch of wisecracking guys who didn't appreciate sentimentality or any kind of emotion that wasn't juvenile in some
1: ways. Right. They were not an emo band.
2: And Paul Westerberg, however, was growing up, and, and the fact that he was able to wear his heart on his sleeve this way really said a lot about him as a songwriter and his growth as a songwriter. He makes this song not only with his lyrics and vocal, but the instrumentation, the 12-string guitar, the lap steel, things you didn't hear on punk records very mm-hmm. much at that time. But it creates this amazing emotional atmosphere with the music
1: he plays. You know, it's a song about not getting none. <laughs> you know, yeah. the Rolling Stones in the 60s has satisfaction. I think the indie rock 80s, the post-punk generation had unsatisfied. Who can't relate to that fact of being 20-something, having no significant relationship in your life, just one night stands if you're lucky? And... On the bigger level, is this all there is in my life? You know, earlier in that record, they sing about bacon and cigarettes. What a lousy dinner. (laughs) That's what those guys were living on. Mm -hmm. You know, and he's asking himself, isn't there more? I feel like I have more to say and more to do in life, but I can't get out of this town. With this song and with Let It Be, they would get out of this town. They would be known by some people at least. I think they created a timeless classic that's up there with satisfaction, and uh, we just have to play it. It's unsatisfied by the replacement. Man, that voice, that's the other thing, Greg. What a vocal performance, unsatisfied by The Replacements. You know, Let It Be has only sold about 250,000 copies to this day. It's a crime. But it doesn't matter. You know, another guy from Minneapolis, St. Paul, said, in American lives there are no second acts. It wouldn't matter. Replacements created a perfect album. It's worth seeking out, and people's lives will be better if they do.
2: <laughs> if you want to share your own thoughts on Let It Be, leave us a voicemail at 888-859-1800
4: tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Just a cast away, island lost at sea, oh. Now I'm stranded on my own. Stranded, far from home. Come on. You remember, we were shipwrecked together. Stranded, I'm so far from home. Stranded, yeah, I'm on my own.
1: As often as possible on Sound Opinions, one of us takes a trip to the desert island and plays you a song on the jukebox that we cannot live without. Mr. Cott, you are getting into the hovercraft and heading out there to the desert island. What do you got for us?
2: Jim, I've got a desert island jukebox pick inspired actually by your last DIJ. You played the Saints and kind of a soul version of the Saints, uh, that great punk band out of Australia. And I played them based on your previous DIJ. <laughs> We're on this 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 kick now. We are. And, and it reminded me of the fact that, yes, soul music, R&B, that sort of dance element was lacking in many ways in the late 70s punk movement. It's seem to have been erased from music for a little bit. And there were a couple of bands, a couple of artists who kept it alive. The Saints on the track you played a couple of weeks ago, and I'm also thinking about Graham Parker Mm. uh, out of the UK. He was a contemporary, people like Elvis Costello and The Clash and and, and The Sex Pistols. So he was sort of put into that punk movement. He was a songwriter who was uh, working a series of dead-end jobs and a serious soul fanatic. He met this band, The Rumor, a bunch of pub rockers from london who were excellent versatile musicians looking for sort of a visionary leader somebody who could who could write some great songs that they could play on and and parker was the guy he had a voice like a howitzer i mean it came at you you could hear the anger and the, and the frustration in it but also that that deep soul that had so influenced him throughout his life and was figuring primarily in his music you know, he was working things in like horns and and ham and organ that were really considered passe at the time. And what he said was, "I'm really looking for an antidote to what I'm hearing as this this sort of white music that has taken over." Everything in the UK, whether it was progressive rock or punk, I want to bring back some of that Stacks and Motown stuff that influenced me so much as a kid. The track I'm going to play is called "Pouring It All Out, and it's basically Graham Parker's manifesto saying my reason for being is to get up here and the ability to sort of pour it out like those great soul singers like Levi Stubbs and Smokey Robinson and Marvin Gaye and Sam and Dave, those guys that influenced me as a youngster growing up in England. It's pouring it all out from Graham Parker on Sound Opinions.
4: Yeah.
1: by Graham Parker and the rumor Greg Cott's Desert Island jukebox pick for the week. What do we have on the show next week Greg? Next week Jim a live performance and interview with the great UK band Savages. Greg as always we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana and Anthony Martinez and one last news note on the way out if you're looking forward to a punk rock Christmas Bad Religion is dropping a holiday album
2: sound opinions everyone's a critic so now it's time to hear what you have to say
6: Hi guys, Uh, this is Ian from Bolingbrook, Illinois, and I'm calling in reference to your Janelle Monet review of her new album, The Electric Lady, and I have to say, I completely disagree with a lot of the things you guys said. I have been an avid fan of hers for an extremely long time since her first one came out, and I will agree that it's not as good as The Arc Android as a whole, but I believe by far that the shining moments of the album with Belange and Prince and Miguel far, far, far outshine the lower middle
0: notes.
6: I just hope that the next time she comes out with a new CD, you guys see the light, I guess. Good show. Hope you guys don't take too much offense to what i said. Bye. Hi there. My name is Mike. I live in Canyon City, Colorado. I've never even heard your show before, but I stumbled across it tonight, and it was really fun to listen to the guys from Cheap Trick carry on. Back when I was a kid in Illinois, I used to sneak into bars and listen to them when I was uh, underage. And they were great then, and they sound like they're still great now. It was really fun to hear that, and I appreciate the show that you gave. Thanks, guys. I'll try to listen again next week.
4: Bye now. Hey guys, it's Chris over in New York, working in the JFK
6: area. I just want to really thank you for putting on Cheap Tricks. Not because they've been around for so long, but looking at four guys, or a new drummer now too, that just sound as good as they did when they came out in the 70s. It's amazing what they can do now in the studios, but still, four guys that never sounded so tight, so clean, and just so happy just being together and just doing music. You know, I really want to appreciate and thank you for uh, taking time out and having them on. All
4: right. Take care. Bye. My name is Gloria Guthoff
6: from Fairmount Park. Uh, You had mentioned live albums and I just wanted to say I'm not really into cheap trick and I really don't like live albums in general because I just, I don't know, I don't like to hear songs sounding like very different from the way I'm used to them but the only live album that matters to me is Rattle and Hum by U2. I know it's, You know, kind of critically panned, but I think every song is excellent, and especially the live version of my Silver Sound I'm Looking For with the Gospel Choir. I just think it is brilliant and a perfect album. I'd be curious to know what you guys think of it. Thank you.